Psalms this morning, specifically the 23rd. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 23, the 23rd Psalm. God's people throughout the ages have loved the Psalms. And for good reason. No other book of Scripture in either the Old or the New Testaments is quite like the book of Psalms. It's a compilation of five sections of meditative poetry intentionally designed to be flexible enough for both closet prayer or personal memorization and corporate worship. Written over the course of almost two millennia, from Moses all the way up to Babylon. And it touches on almost every theological topic from God himself to creation and the fall to covenant all the way to eschatology. And that's just a brief description of the Psalms. When a Christian begins to steep himself in the divinely inspired meditation literature that is the Psalms, the spiritual benefits are just tremendous. But notice I said, steep oneself in the Psalms. To dive deep, not just to read on the surface level, not just occasional glances, not just cursory prayers, distracted listening, mumbling through the psalm sing portion of our corporate worship service, but really focusing on and really giving undivided attention to the psalms reaps tremendous spiritual fruit. There are several methods that God's people have used throughout the ages, throughout the millennia, to engage with Scripture's lyrical theology as it's found in the Psalms. First, clearly, reading them. Simply read the Psalms. And it's not too long into the Psalter as you read the Psalms individually for yourself before you realize just the width and the breadth of human emotion that's covered in the Psalms. The Psalms are brutally honest about the wide range of human experiences and the situations that we find ourselves in. There's lament, there's thanksgiving, there's repentance, there's praise, there's prophecy, there's memory and history, there's confusion. Some of it is directly addressed to God. Some of it is addressed to the covenant community, and some of it is aimed internally at the heart, a sort of primer of how to preach the gospel to yourself, no matter what's going on, no matter how you feel at the moment. And still, other psalms are actually addressed directly at enemies, and malevolent threats. So first, reading the Psalms. 
Or there's a second method, which we've implemented here at Trinity Bible Church over the course of about the last two years or so. Sing the Psalms. The Psalms are intended to be sung. And when we sing the Psalms together, it all but requires us to put biblical themes and biblical topics on our lips and in our throats that you don't find in any standard hymnal or any modern-day repertoire of song selection. Many of us know the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield and how God drew her to Christ by saving her out of a lesbian and a feminist lifestyle and worldview. By her own testimony, and she's spoken about this publicly, after her conversion, she still, as all of us do, had fragments of her former secular atheistic worldview clinging to her. And what finally brought those worldly ideologies crashing down was singing the Psalms. Specifically, Psalm 102 and Psalm 113. As she sang those two Psalms with her fellow believers, and she also affirmed those truths in song, she realized that she was singing about cherishing grandchildren, about being a wife who is a fruitful vine in her home. And she realized that that truth shattered the false narratives of abortion, of feminism, of egalitarianism. And it was because the emotional intimacy of corporately singing those psalm lyrics and those truths, it transferred the truth of God from her head down into her heart. And every Sunday, since we have started singing the psalms here at Trinity Bible Church, my prayer has been every Sunday that pagan philosophies, worldly patterns of thinking, would be expelled by the beauty and the truth of the psalms that we sing, as we did this morning. For his steadfast love endures forever. So first, reading the psalms. Second, singing the psalms. And finally, we can engage with the psalms by hearing them preached, expounded, explained, heralded in light of the cross, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, intercession, and return of our Messiah, Savior, and King, Jesus, who is all our hope and plea and in whom we take refuge. So let's turn our attention now to what is probably the most famous and the most cherished of all the psalms, Psalm 23. I'll read it aloud. You follow in your copy of the scriptures. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The grass may wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. O God, our shepherd, God, our salvation, God, who is our life, would you use this inspired psalm this morning to guide us, to comfort us, to embolden us, to stabilize us. And above all, would you use it to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. And as we behold your beauty, would we become like what, no, who we worship. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Well, right at the beginning of Psalm chapter 23 in verse 1, we get probably the main reason why this psalm is so cross-culturally and perpetually popular. It's because of a mental image, a figure that is drawn from human experience that helps us to understand how God relates to his people as a shepherd. This psalm, like many, if not most, of the psalms was written by David, who had, before he was king, in his resume, shepherd. He knew firsthand what it was like to be a shepherd, to care for, to protect, to watch over, to feed his sheep. Now, when you hear the word shepherd, it's possible, if not probable, that you have a mental image in your head of lush green pastures, rolling hills, a man casually strolling along, basically just babysitting a very obedient and passive flock of sheep. And that's not, of course, what real shepherding is like at all. Shepherding in the real world, particularly in Israel where David was a shepherd, it was tough, gritty, dangerous. To lead and protect a flock, a shepherd had to be aware of weather patterns, of poisonous herbage, of the geographical terrain, of seasonal and daily schedules. He had to be aware of his sheep's own foolish inclinations. He had to be aware of dangerous predators, wolves, bears, lions. In fact, when David told Saul that, yeah, I'll fight Goliath, what did he put forward as his argument? I've got training. I've been a shepherd. I've been a sheep keeper. And you know what that's like, Saul. You know, killing lions grabbing bears by the beard, 
No big deal. And with those same hands that grabbed the beard and the lion and slew them, with those same hands in meekness and humility, petting sheep, playing the harp. Shepherding requires a combination of strength, gentleness, skill, humility, patience, wisdom. And for the rest of Psalm 23, David uses his own firsthand experiences. He points them heavenward and he said, and that's how my God cares for me with strength and gentleness and skill and humility and patience and wisdom and faithfulness and love. The first word of this psalm is not just a title for God. It is God's name. It is his covenant name, Yahweh. It encompasses all that God is and all that God does. That's why it's in all caps in your English translation. David says, God is my shepherd. My shepherd is Yahweh, the sovereign creator, the benevolent father, the sustainer of the universe, the covenant-keeping Savior. If we take the biblical descriptions of God as both loving, compassionate Father, and that is who we pray to as Jesus Christ taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. If you take that description of God as a loving, compassionate Father, and you take the descriptions of God that we see in Scripture as the almighty monarch, you smash those two thoughts together, both powerful defender and loving guide, combine king with caretaker into a single image, and you get a shepherd. Or, as several languages like Spanish and Latin and Dutch, pastor. David declares in verse 1 of Psalm 23, Yahweh is my pastor. And it's not just who God is. It's what my God does. The grammar in this first line is actually active. It's a verb. Yahweh shepherds me. You see, as we walk in the wilderness of this world with dangers all around me and dangers springing up from within me, God pastors me. He leads me. He guides me. He alone is wise enough and strong enough and powerful enough to know what I need. And he alone is loving enough and caring enough and gracious enough to give it to me. That's why David says, when God watches over me, when God leads me, when I am one of his little sheep, I shall not want. Which we think of want, we think of desire. This word here has nothing to do with desire. It means literally lack. I shall not lack. In other words, everything that I genuinely, really, truly need, God has and does provide it. And if I don't currently have something, even if I do want it, it's because God, in his perfect shepherding wisdom and love 
knows that it's actually better in light of eternity for me to go without what I want right now so that he can work what is necessary and needful in me and for me, which is specifically to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and to keep me on the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. And this is one reason among several why Jesus himself applied the theme and title of shepherd to himself. Jesus stands and says, I am the good shepherd. He is my leader, my guide. Jesus is my protector, my provider. He's my teacher. He's the humble shepherd king who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so that he might bring us into the house of the Lord forever. And what this means is that even if I lack something temporal, something even as necessary to this physical life as food or even air, if I don't have those things, but if I have Jesus and Jesus has me, then I have more than I need. Jesus is more important than breakfast. He's more important than life itself. And when God is my shepherd, he's not so concerned with giving me stuff as much as he's concerned with giving me himself. And the way that he gives us himself is by uniting us to his son, Jesus, the good shepherd of our souls who sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts to write the law of God on our hearts so that our desires are changed from craving what's earthly and visible and temporal to setting our affections on things above and finding satisfaction in him so that we stop settling for creation and created things. We stop trying to shepherd ourselves We stop trying to build idolatrous little kingdoms that won't outlast our short earthly lives. And instead, we desire God, our creator, our king, as he offers us himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we stand complete and secure in him forever. Yahweh is my shepherd. And in him, I lack nothing. He supplies what I need most, himself. All I have is Christ. And so in the next two verses, verses two and three, David confronts that lie of self-sufficiency by countering that lie with the truth and the reality of his dependence on his God. We, sheep, are silly. We are foolish. We are stupid creatures. And we've gone astray 
each one to his own way. We convince ourselves we're self-sufficient. But what we quickly find out is that when we try to take matters into our own hands, we only make a bigger mess of things. And so David, in verses 2 and 3, lays down his self-righteousness. He stops convincing himself that he can procure rest or restoration or righteousness by his own works, by his own wisdom. No, instead, I throw myself wholly on my God. I admit that God alone can provide tranquility and peace and sustenance in my soul and for my soul. God, Yahweh, my shepherd, he is the one who lays me down. He leads me. He provides. The beginning of verse 3 could actually be rendered, he converts my soul. He brings me back so that once was lost, now is found. So God provides both physically for my body and also spiritually for my soul, which he returns, he restores, he reverts, he redeems from anxiety and alienation to peace and reconciliation. What he does on account of, because of, and for the sake of his name, for his own glory, for his own honor. And when this level of confidence in God and his good news and his truth seeps into my bones, when gratitude for salvation fills my thoughts, when contentment and trust defines my demeanor and my disposition, when I love God because he first loved me, a very important turn takes place, as it does in verse 4. A switch from talking about God to talking to God. You are with me. You see, David is conveying to us that these are not just abstract theological concepts. These become my personal experience. Peace with God leads to the peace of God. Resting in God brings me the rest of God. So that even in my darkest days, even when my deathbed casts its fearful shadow, even at the funeral of a loved one. My vision is not just filled with the situation, but my eyes are on the God of the situation, my shepherd, who is constantly and always available to me personally through prayer. David realizes that in times of distress, he can do more than rehearse the truth of the gospel, as wonderful as that is. David realizes he can speak directly with and to the God of the gospel. The God who is carrying me on his shoulders through the valley. And so my shepherd's perfect love for me and my 
personal communion with him casts out fear. When I look at the difficult situation and I realize again that Yahweh hears me, God holds me, he helps me, he hedges me about with his kindness and care and protection so that no evil could possibly befall me that hasn't first been filtered through his loving plan for my life. And so that it gets to the point, even if and when death does have the final say in this life, because in Christ God has defeated death, the worst enemy imaginable cannot override or overpower or even come close to my shepherd's ability to carry me safely through the valley to the other side. In other words, I'm never truly alone. You, my God, you're with me. You are under me. You are before me. You are behind me. You are over me. You are in me. You are my Emmanuel. Your presence is a consolation. It consoles me. And then David moves to the rod and the staff. His presence comforts me, excuse me, consoles me. His rod and staff comfort me. You see, throughout the centuries, a shepherd's primary tool was his staff. And this is probably what you had in the beginning when I mentioned your mental image of a shepherd. You probably had that idea of a five or six foot, foot pole with the crook at the top, the rod, and the staff. This was a shepherd's primary tool. It's very diverse in its uses. The shepherd's crook could redirect a wandering sheep by hooking its neck or its leg, pulling it up out of a pit, getting it back on the right path. The rod and the staff can also defend the flock by beating back wolves, using it like a club. And as comforting as it is to know you are guided and you are defended, I think the most comforting use of a shepherd's staff was its use as an identity marker. You see, what happened in ancient Israel is that most sheepfolds did not have physical doors, gates, or bars. They just had openings for an entrance. It was a wall, and then there was a hollow for the sheep to walk through. And at the end of the day, when it was time for the sheep to enter the pen, the shepherd would actually stand at the gate, hold his staff over that doorway, and count each individual sheep as it entered. One, two, three, 99, 100. I am his. He is mine. So that even when I lay down my head to sleep, even when I am unconscious and vulnerable, I take one last look at my shepherd sitting in the doorway with his shepherd's crook over his head, and I am comforted, knowing that I have been counted. Nothing comes into this fold. Nothing can wander out of the fold without the awareness and the permission of my shepherd 
who is the door and who lays down his life for his sheep. And then there's another shift in verse 5. David moves the metaphor to a banquet feast. And it might seem at first like this is a sudden and unexpected shift because sheep, obviously, don't sit at tables. Sheep don't drink from chalices and cups. But in nomadic and Bedouin and shepherding contexts, hospitality is highly prized. It's one of the highest virtues in a shepherding and nomadic society. You bring someone into your tent, you're expected to feed them. You're expected to entertain them. You're expected to shelter them. You're expected to accept them. And even if my enemies are all around the tent with their daggers, with their false accusations, with their worldly philosophies and ideologies, in the tent, there's joy, there's laughter, there's bounty because of the generous host that is throwing the party. In fact, this host, this shepherd host, is so generous that he goes above and beyond and he bathes and he cleanses his guests. The anointing in verse 5 is not what we typically think of when we hear anointing in the Old Testament. It's not a messianic anointing here. That's a separate and different Hebrew word. You might say the word for anointing in this verse is that he permeates or he slakes or he smears my head and my face with oil to brighten my countenance. He uses it as a perfume or a shampoo to cover up the stench of the day's toil and labor and the desert. The cup, too, is a picture of oversaturating joy, drenched in gladness, intoxicated by God's love as we sit around the Lord's table and partake of the meal and the fellowship that he has invited us into by his mercy and by his grace. And then, in verse 6, David has something else to say about mercy and God's goodness. Something surprising. They follow me. The Hebrew word for follows is particularly surprising here because it's usually very negative. It usually has the idea of persecution, being persecuted, being, being chased. But here, it's God's covenant faithfulness. It's God's loyal kindness. It's his steadfast love and his goodness that follow, pursue, drive, corral me. You might even say that God chases down the one he loves. You can't escape his goodness and his grace. God has set his affection and his favor on you, his sheep, his child. And so now what motivates and compels me and directs me at every stage of my life is the character and attributes and charity and holiness of my God. And his goodness and his mercy at the end of the psalm will corral me right into Yahweh's house. 
If you'd allow me to translate that last word forever, literally, it means to length of days or prolongment of days. Because right now we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We wait eagerly to enter the new Jerusalem in our glorified resurrection bodies to be welcomed by our shepherd king's outstretched, nail-pierced hands, and we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make all things new and bring us your sheep home. With that longing in our hearts, what I'd like us to do together is recite in unison the 23rd, the shepherd psalm. Let's say this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pastor Joe, would you come and close us in a word of prayer? Let's join him to pray together. Our Father, you are good and gracious and merciful and faithful and generous. Your word has held you up before us and has reminded us of who you are and of what you're like and of what you do for those who are yours. We pray now, Father, that we might walk in truth, believing what you have told us, trusting your character, dependent upon you. We pray that you would hold the truth of your word up before us in such a way that we do not quickly forget what we have heard, but are transformed by it. We thank you for Pastor Dave's ministry of it to us today. We pray that you might cause us to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake in the days to come. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.